All right, if you'll take your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 23, we're uh, still looking at the story of Abraham, and this is week, I don't know, maybe uh, nine on uh, Abraham, and I was only going to do this for one week originally, so we're uh, definitely taking our time, but the story of Abraham is important. It's not just interesting, it's important uh, for one thing because Genesis presents it as God's solution to the problems of the whole world. So there have been some pivotal people throughout history, but there are really uh, not many that are more pivotal, pivotal uh, than Abraham. As we're uh, looking at Abraham, we're looking at some of the first lessons in the Bible about how God is going to provide salvation. You remember the contrast between the Tower of Babel and Abraham at the start? You have man's way of saving versus God's. And so as we study Abraham's life, we're looking at God's plan for salvation, and we're getting some foundational principles that are going to be explained and expanded on later on, kind of like if you're going to take physics in university, you normally have to take calculus first, which sounds terrible to me, but apparently some people do that, and they do that because there's principles in calculus that are going to help you do physics. Um, maybe another way to, to say it would be, if you think of it, growing up, you were taught family values or culturally cultural values. And so some of those values get so ingrained in you that they're just part of how you look at the world. I was thinking of this the other day because I realized a value that I have that I never thought of as a value. I just thought of it as obvious. And um, I was talking to someone about getting up early. And I realized that I've always assumed that if you're serious, you get up early in the morning and um, you go to bed early. So if I see someone who normally goes to bed late, I automatically almost have a, uh, like, wow. Uh, and um, it's tempting for me to see someone who sleeps in as a sign of being lazy. And uh, the person I was talking to didn't think that way. That was not, just totally not something, part of how they looked at the world. And I started thinking, where did I get that from? Uh, where did I get that value from? And I think some of it, it might be true, but uh, it also was something I was taught. And I looked back and there were sayings that I was taught, like early to bed, early to rise, makes a man he healthy, happy, and wise. And uh, that's Ben Franklin, and he's from Philadelphia, and uh, that's where I'm from. My dad was a farmer, or he grew up, he wasn't a farmer, but he grew up on a farm. And you definitely don't uh, wake up late if you do actual farming. And so I think that must have been something that he ingrained in me from being a young man. Even when I went to college, I would, I would go to bed at uh, 9.30 or 10 <laughs> and wake up. I, I was telling someone the other day, I never have done in my whole life that I can remember a um, all-nighter. Not, uh, not, not once for sure. Um, and... Uh, that's just because somehow that became a, a, a value. Don't take that as like from the Bible. That I'm just sharing. That was uh, an illustration of how we have values sometimes that our families teach us that we don't always even, they just become so deep in us that they impact how we look at the world and we don't even know how that became a value necessarily. And that's actually one of the reasons we want to immerse ourselves in the story of Abraham because this is where God teaches us some of our family values as believers that we actually know are like uh, not just opinion or ways of looking at the world, but 
God's family values, non-negotiable. And the story began, you remember, I'm sure, not with uh, Abraham seeking God, but with God calling Abraham and making him a promise. In Genesis 12, there were three parts to the promise, seed, land, and international blessing. And we've learned a lot about how that plan works. Like, first of all, we've learned who the specific descendants of Abraham are that we're talking about. It's going to be Isaac. And uh, we saw that we can be sure that this little group of people, Israel, is going to survive and have an international impact. It's interesting today, you don't meet many Hittites, you don't meet many Uzites, you don't meet many uh, of the rest of the Canaanites, but you meet actual Israelites, or uh, we know of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and part of it is because God was committed to protecting uh, this nation. And uh, Abraham made terrible choices that would seem to put the seed in jeopardy, but God does the impossible and protects them. And of course, we saw that God wants them to be set apart, and we enjoyed the impossible way that God's going about keeping this promise. And we learned that part of the promise was about a specific individual, so it was about the nation, but it wasn't just about the nation. Uh, there was going to be, or is going to be, a uh, individual from Israel who will possess the gate of his enemies. That's how uh, Moses puts it, in the singular like that. Then we talked about the international blessing part of the promise. So we talked about the seed part of the promise. We talked about the international blessing part of the promise. And we saw that God explains that he is going to bless the world in a way that preserves and honors his justice. We maybe get a glimpse in the sacrifice of Isaac that God is going to provide a substitute. And we see again that it's going to be an individual who enables the nations of the earth to be blessed. And so we know a lot about the plan by the time we get to Genesis 23, But we open up Genesis chapter 23 with a pretty important piece of the plan that's still missing. And so let me read verses 1 through 3 and see if you can spot it. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. And you can stop there, because what does Abraham say about himself? He says that he is a sojourner and a foreigner. And at this point, how old is he? He's 10 years older than Sarah, so he's 137. Which means that he's lived in the land for about 62 years. But even after 62 years of living in this land, it's clearly not his land. It's not his home. And that's a problem. That's a problem. This is a chapter about Abraham and the land. And I want to say that at the beginning because there's a temptation, if you're reading this chapter, uh, to think of it as sort of strange and maybe a little boring. We open this up and we're like, what is this about? Because what's the title at the top? Sarah's death and burial. And so this is the whole chapter, it's a whole chapter on the death of someone and how Abraham made a way to barrier, which uh, probably doesn't sound that exciting to most of us. And we'll see that it's pretty detailed. So there's this big, long description of how Abraham went about finding a way to bury Sarah. And I think you could see how someone could look at that and think that doesn't seem very uh, compelling, or at the very least, that doesn't seem like something that would be very practical. But 
we know this is God writing this book ultimately. And so God takes a whole chapter on this as he tells the story of Abraham and Sarah. And he doesn't waste words, God. This book is not endless. It's only got so many words in it. So he chose the words he chose for a reason. And even if we just think about the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, there's a lot of information he doesn't give us. Because Sarah is 127 years old at this point, and how much have we heard about her for the last 37 years? Not, not much. She had Isaac, she did something terrible to Hagar, and that's pretty much it. And then all of a sudden we get a whole chapter on her death and burial. So that's not an accident. There must be something pretty important here. And I think ultimately what's important here has to do with the idea of the land, the land, the promise about the land. So before we even look at this chapter, and we're going to, but before we look at this chapter, I want us to think about the significance of the land for a moment. Because why is Abraham and the land something that should matter to us? And one answer to that question begins back in Genesis 1, and I'll do this quick, I promise, because I always do this, but land is an important part of the beginning of the Bible. And so if you think about God's original design for humans and the world and the land in Genesis 1 and 2, what is it? So we'll just do it real quick. Genesis 1, God creates this world, and what does he keep saying as he looks at the land? It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And Things are working the way they should. Uh, the earth is like producing all kinds of stuff for people's good. Actually, uh, God makes it clear, you're not going to have to work for your groceries. Like Genesis 1.29, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then Genesis 2 begins with rest, and it tells us about this beautiful garden paradise, and God takes man, and he puts him in the garden, and he makes to spring up from the ground every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. And there are rivers and there's gold. And most importantly, we have God's presence. And that's how the world's supposed to be. In other words, that's like how the land is supposed to work. But of course, that's not how the land is. Why? Genesis 3, man sins and the land is cursed. The land gets cursed. Listen to Genesis 3.17. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So it's interesting that God doesn't say you're cursed. He says cursed is the ground because of you. And both man and woman are kicked out of the garden, a place where the earth was producing for them. And what they have to do now is work. They have to work the ground from which he was taken to even eat. And that's a challenge because it's like the world is working against them because of their rebellion against God. And I'm sure we could think more about that, but we see how our relationship with the land is supposed to be, and we see how it is now, and that's a huge problem, right? Like, if we just think about some of the problems we experience now because of the land, the problems in the land, what would be some? Like, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, um, just the, I, the problems that we experience because the earth is cursed um, are almost almost endless. And we see some of those problems in Genesis 3 through 11. In pain you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. 
And it talks about the ground almost as being, being against us. When you work the ground, it shall not yield to you its strength. And people are tired in Genesis 5. There's a father who's just saying, maybe this will be the one who will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And God uses the weather to judge us with this massive flood. And animals are afraid of us and have to be afraid of us. Otherwise, they would kill us. And we have in Genesis 9, animals actually killing man and man killing each other. And so we kind of take it for granted now the way the world is. But imagine if you grew up in the nicest, safest, most comfortable place on earth, and then you were kidnapped, and you were put on a plane, and you were uh, flown over to Somalia, and just dropped in the middle of Somalia or some other really super dangerous place. Watch a documentary on Somalia. That's a scary place. And so you would think, this is incredibly frightening like to be by yourself in Somalia after you came from this just incredibly safe place. Probably, actually, if we just took you took some of us down tonight to the center of L.A., we would be, and left us there, we would be uh, fairly nervous, especially if you took our phone away from us or something. But if you talk to the people there, they would think of it as somewhat normal. Like if you if they didn't had never been anywhere but Somalia, and you're like I'm you're like look looking around so scared all the time they'd be like what's what's wrong with you you know um, we, that we I always talk about that funny experience we had in South Africa where when we first got there our car broke down and we were so scared and standing outside the van just smiling because we thought everybody wanted to shoot us and. Realizing later we were like in a super rural area where there was all just like nice farmers who were walking by us thinking, wow, you're so strange. <laughs> but if uh, you were dropped in Somalia, you would be very frightened, and they wouldn't. And probably if they didn't know any different, they would not notice many of the things that would frighten you. But how desperately would you want to get back to where you came from if you knew better? And so we're kind of used to the world as it is now, uh, but that's not because how it is now is the way it's supposed to be or actually is so wonderful. It's like a real, real, real problem, the way the world works now. And that's why the land matters when we start to read about Abraham, because God is talking about reversing the curse. And I think this is so important to understand about the Bible and Christianity is that it's not just a philosophy. It's not just a philosophy. The story of the Bible is about how God is going to act in history to fix the problems that we have created. And if God doesn't fix this particular problem, the land problem, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. If God says, I'm going to fix most of the other problems, but I'm not going to deal with the land problem, we're in trouble. And so we look at God's promises to Abraham, and what do we see? We see, we said uh, seed, yes. We saw blessing, yes, but also land. He says, Genesis 12, 1, go to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give you this land. And so that's hopeful, even though we don't know if we're just reading through Genesis why God's giving him this land yet. But if he shows us all the problems in the land in the opening chapters, we would maybe expect that he's giving Abraham the land 
to do something about those problems we have seen. And yet it doesn't look that amazing at first, because you remember what's the first thing that happens in the land when Abraham gets there? Famine, and then second thing, the land can't support both Abraham and Lot. But even with those questions in our minds, Genesis 13 says God's going to give it to him. And over and over through Genesis 13 through 25, really, it makes it clear that this land that he wants to give Abraham is really unique, special, important, part of the way in which God's going to solve the problem that we read about in Genesis 1 through 11, part of the plan. And Abraham may have understood that a little, but the rest of the tour is going to make that more clear. Uh, so we're going to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy someday, and we're going to see. It's like God, what his plan was, the way he revealed it, was that he was going to take Israel and place them in the land, a little like how he took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden. And we'll learn more about that later. Um, and that's part of why he even chose to put them in that particular spot on the planet because of where it was located and the influence it would have on the nations around them. But for now, it helps us get an idea of the significance of the promise of the land as we read about Abraham. And yet, in Genesis chapter 23, we're, ne- we're kind of nearing the end of his life, Abraham. Because we're re- and we know that because we're reading about his wife, Sarah, dying. And yet, what does he say about himself? He says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. And what does that mean? It means that he's an old man, and the land doesn't belong to him. It's not his. In spite of all the things God told him. And if we go back just a little, we see that over and over. To show you just a couple, Genesis 20, verse 15. Abimelech's talking to Abraham, and he says, Behold, uh, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. My land, Abimelech says, like he's in charge of it. And Genesis 21, 34, And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So this land belonged to them. So he has the seed now, but not the land. And probably the most intense illustration of that is the fact that he doesn't even have a place to bury his wife. So imagine. That's why he says in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Chapter 23, verse 4. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And so this is a problem for a lot of reasons. Like as we open this chapter, it's a problem. Sarah dying is a problem because we're talking about Abraham as part of God's plan to reverse the curse. And Sarah lived a long time, yes, but she died. And so that's like staring you in the face and saying, we've got a problem here. That needs to be fixed because it's great that Abraham was chosen by God and he's going to be used to reverse the curse, but a big part of the curse is death. And what good are all these promises going to do you if the people God promises to these great things die, you know? So that's a problem. And then obviously it must have been painful not to have a place to bury your wife just for all the normal reasons. But why else? Because of the promise. Here it's been all these years and God's made a great promise about the land and Abraham's getting old and nothing. He actually has to go to the Hittites and ask for a place to bury his wife. If we look at verse 5, Abraham says, I, wanted, I want to buy a piece of property so I can bury my wife. And the Hittites respond, verse 6, Hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. 
which seems kind, right? And maybe in some ways it is. And they're saying something about Abraham. They're saying he's powerful and he's, and he's kingly and that he has a special relationship with God. Um, and we get a, a sense of what is supposed to happen with Israel in the future. The nations are supposed to look at Israel and say, there's something different about you because of your relationship with God like he does, they do about Abraham. And uh, they're talking to Abraham like this probably because he's so powerful. You remember how he defeated all those kings? And uh, you see the way King Abimelech related to him, so he's not someone you mess with. And yet even though they respect Abraham, they don't want to sell him one of their tombs. That's what's behind this. If you'll, uh, it's, it's, it's more like, Abraham, you asked to buy the land. No, we won't sell it to you, but we'll loan some of the land to you. Um, and living where we live, it's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around this. But in Africa, it could be a little more like this. So if you go to a tribe, uh, say you move to Mozambique, you move to a village, and you want a piece of property, you don't just get to buy it. You would have to go to the, the village tribal chief, and when you go to him, he has the power to uh, help you get some property, but the way he would do that is lease the land to you um, so that it actually still belongs to him, and he can take it back really whenever it wants, whenever he wants, because it's the land of their ancestors. And uh, they don't just sell the land of their ancestors. And they didn't want to sell this land to Abraham as a foreigner. And yet it's clearly important to Abraham that he does purchase this land. When it comes to the promise God made him, it's interesting, Abraham won't accept help. Um, If you think back to the king of Sodom who wanted to give Abraham something, he's like, no, I don't want you thinking you did this. And maybe that's what's happening here, but... I don't know, but verse 7, it says, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And so imagine he's talking to them as a group, and he's showing them all this respect. And verse 8, he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, which uh, is a funny name, first of all. It sounds almost like a comedy movie about a male model or something, the son of Zohar, but... um, it's also funny because uh, Abraham clearly has a strategy. He Remember how he started by kind of saying, um, give me a piece of property uh, like any property would do. Uh, and, and here we see that he actually knows what cave he wants. Um, and so he says, if you're okay with me burying my dad out of my sight, then talk to Ephron for me. And he's talking to the whole group in a sense um, because he wants them to put pressure on Ephron. But he doesn't want to be given the property. Uh, Next verse, say he says, uh, Entreat for me, Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. And so he's asking for the cave. And Ephron's there, verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. And so... They're sitting at the gate of the city somehow, and I don't know if, uh, it's, if Ephron is like the mayor because it calls it his city, or that, if that's just a way of talking. But he answers, and he says in verse 11, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. And so there's like a little dance going on here, actually. Um, it's like when we were in Africa, we would sometimes get to attend something called a labola ceremony, 
And uh, Labola is where the man comes to pay a price for uh, the girl that he wants to be his wife. And um, there's this whole way that each African culture goes about it, but a lot of the guys that came to our church were Congolese. And so we got to attend some of these Congolese Labola ceremonies. And everyone knows what's going on. I mean, that's how I could be there. They tell me when it was, and I was invited. Um, I didn't, when I went, know what was going on, but they knew. And uh, there's this whole process to it. So when a man comes, and they all know he's coming, obviously, because all the uncles and aunts and everybody's there, and this is like a ceremony. But when he comes, he'll ring the bell at the gate, and uh, someone from the family will come out and meet him, uh, like an uncle or a cousin, and um, be like, what are you doing here? Um, it's nice to see you. Why'd you come? And then he'll say why he's here, and uh, they'll act like they don't know what he's talking about. And he'll basically have to pay them money the whole way in to be able to get into the house. So almost like each step, he has to put money down at their feet. And when he gets in the house, there's everybody there, but they all act surprised, like, what is this guy doing here? And he'll sit down and they'll say, like, why are you here? And uh, he'll say, I'm here to marry one of your daughters. And so they'll say, uh, okay, and they'll go get a young girl and they'll bring her to him, like usually like seven or eight, and they'll be like, is this the one that you met? Is this the girl that you met? And then he's, uh, he's like, no, 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 that's not the girl that I'm talking about. And uh, they'll say, who do you mean? And then he'll say the name and they'll say, oh, that's too bad, she's not here, she's in the Congo. And you'll have to pay the uh, airline ticket for her to come. And so then uh, she's really upstairs, of course, and everybody knows that, but the point is they go through this whole uh, process, and I think that's what Ephron's doing here. He's acting like he wants to give Abraham the land, uh, the cave, and actually also the field, he says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I'll give it to you. Bury your dead. I don't know why he adds the field, but in his mind, somehow they're attached. And Abraham bows again, verse 12. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And so this is still between Abraham and all the people. He wants them to be on his side. And he talks to Ephron. Moses says, in the hearing of the people of the land. And he keeps calling him that. I don't know why. But verse 13, he says, But if you'll hear me, I give you the, the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answers. Verse 14, My Lord, listen to me. A, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Which is funny because 400 shekels of silver is a lot of money. That's like a lot of money. Later in the Bible, we'll find David brought, bought a threshing <clears throat> floor and oxen at the end of 2 Samuel, and he only paid uh, 50 shekels of silver for it. Um, and that's like a lot of years later, though I don't think inflation was as bad back then as it is now. But still, 400 shekels is a lot. And yet Abraham has no problems with it. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. And so there seems to be a stress he, that he got this fairly, right? And then we get the details, Genesis 23, 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. 
And it's interesting that he talks about the trees again. Uh, you read the story of Abraham, there's a lot of talk about trees, and I don't always know why, but there must be a reason because it's there. But he goes and he buries Sarah. Verse 19 tells us where, and verse 20 affirms the land really was given to Abraham. The field and the cave that's in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. And you're like, okay, but why is this here? What's it about? Um, it's clearly about the first time Abraham came to possess some of the land in Canaan. And that's significant because this is the land God had promised to him as part of his plan for reversing the curse. And so we want to look at it and just think a little about what it might say about that promise. And the first thing we see, of course, is that Abraham wants to bury Sarah in Canaan. It's got to be here in Canaan. If this were the only story about this, we wouldn't think much of it because that's where she died, and I don't know what the custom was back then. Nowadays, if, if you die somewhere, they'll often transport you back to where you're from, but I can see that would seem impossible in those days. And yet, you know what? We keep reading in Genesis, and this cave and this location will become important, like later in the book. So it's where Abraham is buried. Um, when Moses talks about the burial of Isaac, he doesn't tell us the location, but if you go to the end of Genesis, you'll find out that Jacob dies in Genesis 49 and 50, and he dies in Egypt, so pretty far away from this cave. And yet, you know what? He makes Joseph promise. He says, you better not bury me here. Uh, listen to it. Genesis 49, 29, and 30 says, then he commanded them and said to them, all his sons, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah and his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah and his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that's in it were bought from the Hittites. And it's interesting how specific that is, right? Like over and over, what field, how they came to have it. But it seems like this is really important to him. Do not bury me in Egypt. Bury me in that field. <laughs> and Joseph actually says something similar in Genesis 50, verse 24. Uh, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so that doesn't really strike us that much. But imagine there was like a really famous um, U.S. senator who was from a small village in uh, Chad, and uh, he dies after like 40 years of living in America and becoming this U.S. senator. And before he dies, he makes a big deal out of, you better take my body back to Chad and bury me in a small little field in a cave there. That would obviously be saying something significant. And that's kind of what's happening here with Joseph and uh, Jacob, and you wonder why is it so important? Um, why is it so important they're buried there? And if I'm an ancient Israelite hearing this for the first time, I wonder if part of the reason this is important is because it's demonstrating that they really do have a stake in the land. Like God promised it to them, and their ancestors are buried there. 
Um, and even now, if there's a land where your ancestors are buried, uh, that land becomes significant and you have a connection to it. So like in Africa, I know, like say you have a farm and you find out, somebody finds out that their ancestor was buried on your farm, that land will very easily revert back to that person, even if it's been generations since their ancestor was buried there. And I would think it would have been even more so back then. But also, why did Joseph want his bones to go back there? Why did Jacob want his family to go to all the effort to take him back? Joseph tells his reason. He says it has something to do with God and what he's going to do in the future. So he's like, even though I'm dying now, I know the plan's not over. It doesn't end with us here in Egypt. And of course, like we said earlier, it can't be over. Otherwise, it's not much of a promise. If God says to Abraham, I'm going to do all this, but if a Abraham dies and all he has is this cave, that is kind of a letdown, isn't it? God's like, I am going to use you to reverse the curse, and it's just going to be amazing. And then Abraham dies, and he's got like a cave that he bought for 400 shekels of silver in some person's field. And I think the reason Moses records all these details about his purchasing the cave is because it's a sign of Abraham's faith in what God is going to do in the future. And so Abraham even buying this cave is like a way of him saying, this story has a lot more to be written. God's promised me this land. I've got nothing, but I, not, I know it's not over for me, and I, not, I know it's not over for, for what God's going to do through me. And uh, one reason we can say that with confidence is because later in the Bible, it works like this. So we'll find out later in the Bible, Jeremiah is a prophet, and Israel is about to be sent by God into exile. But before they do, God tells Jeremiah, go buy land, which is like the worst time to buy land um, when your family and your nation is about to be sent into exile. And he only has to pay 17 shekels of silver because he's buying it from his cousin. But then he puts the deed in like an earthenware vessel so that it stays protected because it was supposed to be a sign that even though they're going into exile, they're coming back. And so I think maybe Abraham buying this piece of property and all these details being written down would be a little like me buying a piece of land in Israel now so that when Jesus returns, I could say like, hey, that's my property. That's my property. I don't know, but it kind of it feels like that. Abraham's a sojourner and an exile for most of his life, and Sarah dies, and they're still sojourners and exiles, but he knows it isn't going to end there, and that's so important. Um, that's so important. If we, if we go all the way back to the first big example of what it looks like to be one of God's people in this world right now, it's Abraham, and what do we see as we look at his life? We see that he gets a big promise and some very small glimpses of God's fulfillment of that promise. So he's promised a nation, and he just has a couple of sons. And he's promised land, and he gets a cave and a field. But that's not the end. That's not the end. That's, that's the point. That's not the end. Hebrews 11, if you just go to Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of the New Testament tells Abraham's story, and he uses Abraham and the way in which God worked in his life as an example for us. And he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So uh, this is something I hadn't thought of before, but if you look at the chronology in Genesis, uh, Abraham lived with Jacob for a number of years, probably until he was mid-teens. But verse 10, where did they live? They lived in a tent, and why did they live like that? This is the important verse. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was living his life with an eternal perspective, and in this life, he only got a really small taste, but he was looking forward to something bigger. And verse 13 tells us, Abraham and others all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And Abraham could have done that. He had a lot of money, but he didn't. He stayed all the way to his own death, past Sarah's. Why? Again, it's faith in God's promise, knowing that even though they're not seeing everything accomplished yet, it's going to be accomplished. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so a lot of this life, you know, all we see is a partial fulfillment of God's promises. And things are so broken. And we know we're so broken. And sometimes we look at the way the world is, and we think it's so hard to keep believing because we don't, we don't see all of God's promises fulfilled yet. But imagine Abraham. God's like, you're going to have this whole land. Go on a long walk. I'm going to just walk the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a long walk. And he's like, you're, every step, you're, you're, every place, every part of it, you're going to have. And then Sarah dies. And he doesn't even have a place to bury her. But he believed in what happened. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became a nation. That nation was rescued from Egypt. And God gave that nation the promised land. And it doesn't end there because that's just a glimpse of where it's all going. God's going to fix the problems man's sin created. And those problems have something to do with the land. The land's been cursed. And like Abraham, we're waiting for him to do it. And yet we have more proof than Abraham. God gave Abraham that cave, but we have more than a cave. And like Abraham, even though we're sojourners and exiles on this earth right now, we need to live our lives believing that God is going to do it. He's going to keep his promise. We need to be a church that's seeking a homeland, desiring a better country, because it's coming. It's really coming. In fact, let me just close by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, because I think it's such a good specific application. Peter writes, he knows that it's going to be hard to keep believing. And so he says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring your seer, up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this, first of all, you know these verses, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And they could have said to Abraham, where is this land? You know, where is this land that the Lord promised you? You know, your wife's dead in there. Your wife's dead and you're living in that tent. And they've 
mocked God's people for a long time, telling us that God won't keep his promises. And the writer of Peter of Second Peter says, Peter, he says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're looking for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. So remember the promise. Um, even when we see all this death around us and all this brokenness, like Abraham, as he walked into that tent and saw his wife, Sarah, dead, even as we see all this death and we don't have a place to bury our dead, you know, remember the promise. And like Abraham, hold on, because we might only have a little cave now, <laughs> But we've got a great uh, future coming, and God's going to keep his promise. And that promise involves solving the problem of the land, that there's going to be a day in which you and I have uh, resurrected bodies, and we're going to be living on an earth where there is no sin and there's no pain and there's no mourning, and there's no worry, and there's no anxiety, and everything's like the Garden of Eden, uh, but better, actually, much, much, much better. It, it's coming. God's been working on this plan for a, for a long time, and uh, he's going he's gonna to finish it for sure. Genesis uh, 23, uh, it sometimes um, might seem a little bit dull, but actually... Um, it's a passage filled with hope. And maybe, hopefully, as we do some of this, part of the reason why we're doing these things on um, Wednesday nights is almost as a model for what you can try to do a little in your devotions. I know that um, I have more time, so you don't have to prepare a whole sermon like I just did. But when you come to a chapter like this, you want to read it in faith, um, knowing that it's in the Bible for a reason. And so... Um, you want to try to step back and think, huh, what might that reason be? And um, you'll often, if you connect it to the big story, see that there's, there's more there in those kind of um, seemingly boring uh, details than you might think at first. All right, any thoughts or comments or questions? This ends up me being, being more me preaching to you guys, but thank you. Um, thank you for coming out on Wednesday nights. It sure is fun for me to work through um, these stories. I'm really excited about getting to Jacob soon. We've got one 
more chapter with Abraham. Isaac doesn't get much in Genesis for some reason. He's hardly there. He's mostly a player in other people's stories. But we're going to get to Jacob, and Jacob is really a rascal. He is really, really an interesting character um, and a good reminder that God is a God who knows how to work with sinners. He's been working with sinners, <laughs> broken people for a really long time.